Thank you, Dad. Brian and Elizabeth's marriage is very special to me. Some of you know the story. I was scheduled to officiate at their wedding. Prior to that, I had scheduled 10 days with a church in New York. Uh, Barb put me on the plane, and within hours of my departing, she ended up in the hospital. My children didn't want me to know. She didn't want me to know. And finally, one of them said, we have to tell Dad. And so uh, they let me know Barb was in the hospital. And my immediate impulse was to rush home. But she said, no, I'm here. You're there. God wants you there. Don't come home until you've married Brian and Elizabeth. It's a hard 10 days. But what a blessing at the end to see this couple. Till the day I die, their marriage will have a special place in my heart because the price was paid to achieve it. May God bless you. It's a joy to see you. Well, what do we say today? <laughs> Last uh, Tuesday, I began to sense that the Lord wanted me to say something this morning about the church at Philippi. I had questions. I went into the prayer room, lay down on my back on the floor, and began to pray. It became quite clear that that was the arena that should be our topic for this morning, but what? A couple of days later, it seemed that there were two sermons that God was speaking to my heart. One was this, the message of how the gospel came to Philippi, and the other one was to exegete or at least bring a word from the epistle itself. And Within an hour, two complete sermons had come to my mind. Which one? Yesterday morning, it became clear to me that the word we're to bring today is how the gospel came to Philippi. And perhaps I may take a page out of Bill Sullivan's book and two weeks from now <laughs> bring the word on uh, the epistle. By the way, next Sunday, Bill, as you recall, is going to be speaking from Psalm 119, and we were chatting uh, after that, remind after the sermon last Sunday, and remembered that Bill Sanders one time challenged the church and said, if there's anybody in the church who memorized Psalm 119, I'll give you $100. One lady did it. Now, Bill operates a little differently. He's going to tell the folks at Piccolo House Church that they're all required to memorize it. <laughs> and being short of funds, any who fail to do so will be fined $100. <laughs> Not so. The story of how the gospel came to Philippi begins several years before 
the gospel reach that city, that area, that province. Actually, it's the story of the life of Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul up to the time that he took the gospel to Macedonia. So let's think about that. Saul was born in Tarsus, which was a very prominent city in a a Roman colony. And because he was born there, he was born a Roman citizen, even though a Jew. There was a very vibrant Jewish community in Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was born to a family of means. And as soon as he was old enough, they sent him to Jerusalem to study at the feet of the most prominent rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. And he studied and became a zealous defender of the Jewish faith. But in Jerusalem he found something he had never seen before. It was a group calling themselves disciples of Jesus, followers of the way. And he saw them as perverting the Jewish faith. And being a zealot, he began to go forth and harass these Christians. He began to arrest them, put them in jail every time there was a trial. And what shall we do? He said, I voted for the death penalty. I wanted to kill Christians to remove this horrible infection from the world. One day he had a warrant for the arrest of Christians in Damascus. And traveling from Jerusalem toward Damascus, he had with him a coterie of armed guards, we don't know, temple guards, someone. And as they drew near to the city, suddenly a brilliant light surrounded him, and he was blinded. And from that light, a voice said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Those who were with him heard the voice, but not the words. They didn't understand it. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Think of that. He had come to Jerusalem after Jesus had already ascended. He had never seen Jesus. Yet Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Jesus was saying every time the lash is applied to the back of a Christian, it is applied to my back. Every time a Christian is imprisoned, I am imprisoned. Every time someone suffers because they belong to me, That's a marvelous thought, isn't it? Today in the Middle East, Christians are being beheaded. Christian women are being raped. Christians are being beaten. They're being driven from their homes. But everyone who is experiencing that, Jesus is experiencing the same thing. Psalm 23, Yea, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Heart Jesus suffered with every one of us. And here in America, so far, we have not experienced physical persecution, but it has already begun in many ways. Every time someone is refused a promotion because they're too religious, being a follower of Jesus. Every time someone is penalized and fined because they will not go along with social mores because 
social mores require them to violate their conscience before the Lord. Every time anyone pays a price for their faith, Jesus, Jesus experiences that with them. You're not alone. And so Saul went into Damascus. He was blind. He couldn't see. He had to be helped. And there was a man in Ananias, and the Lord said, Go, I want you to go talk to this man. I want you to tell him about me. Tell him what to do to be saved. Wait a minute, Lord. You don't know who this guy is. Jesus said, Yes, I do. <laughs> and I have a great plan for him. He's going to be my servant. He'll suffer many things for me. He's going to go among the Gentiles. And so he came and spoke the word to Saul. Why tarest thou? Rise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, and he was immersed into Jesus. And then what happened? He was a firebrand. Wow, now I know the truth. And so he began uh, confronting the Jews in the area, began causing all kinds of problems, stirring up trouble. The Jews plotted to kill him, and so the Christians that he had come to arrest now helped him escape over the wall in a basket. And he went to Jerusalem. And when he got back to Jerusalem, those said, this one who had persecuted the Christians now is defending them. Or trouble. They were going to kill him. And so the Jerusalem Christians said, we've got to get this guy out of town. They sent him down to Caesarea and then back to Troas. Now, there is a period of about six to ten years, depending on how you figure the chronology, in which we have no narrative telling us what happened during those years. But we do have some glimpses. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes something that happened 14 years before, and that would have put him right on the cusp of the time he was in Troas. And among the things he says about that time, he said, I had a thorn in the flesh, some kind of an affliction. I begged God three times to take it away. God said, no, my grace is sufficient for thee. That I had that because I could get boastful and proud because of the many revelations God's given me over the years. And then in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, another interesting thing, where those who were saying he's really not an apostle, we really don't need to listen to him, he said, I, I hate to do this, but let me tell you some of my credentials. Three times I was I received stripes, three times I was beaten with rods. He described I was stoned once, how many times in shipwrecks? Now, we know the life of him, of Paul, in great detail from the time after the time in Troas. We have one record of his being stoned in Lystra. That fits what he wrote. But we have only one shipwreck. He says three. We have one record of his being lashed. He said three times. When did these other times happen? The only conclusion we can reach is that after he went back to Troas, in his zeal, he was trying to preach Jesus. And during that time, he was whipped. During that time, he was beaten with rods. During that time, he was experiencing shipwrecks. And then Barnabas was sent by the Jerusalem church to Antioch in Syria, a new church, and they sent a mature man to help develop the church. And he realized he needed help, and he remembered Saul of Tarsus, and he asked Saul to come and help him. And so for a year, 
Saul of Tarsus was discipled by Barnabas, served as his helper. They took an offering to Jerusalem to help the poor. They came back. And then finally, one day, as recorded in Acts chapter 8, as the leaders of the church were praying together, the Holy Spirit said, Separate unto me Saul and Barnabas under the work whereunto I have called them. Now think about this. When he met Jesus for the first time, the Lord said to Ananias, I have a special call on this man's life. He's going to suffer much for me. He's going to be going out among the Gentiles. And when he was in Jerusalem and about to be killed, the Lord said, go, <laughs> said to Paul himself, Saul himself, go, because I'm going to send you among the Gentiles and before kings and before governors. But 10, 12, perhaps 14 years passed before that call came to be realized. There's a lesson for us here. Before God releases us into ministry, He prepares us. He seasons us. He knew what it was like to be beaten for the faith. He knew what it was like to be rejected. He had been discipled by a mature man named Barnabas. God had used these years to develop his character. He had learned in spite of sickness to go on serve the king. Sometimes we see a person in the church who has obvious gifts, they're good before the public, they have the right personality, and our tendency is to quickly stick them into a position. Usually when we do that quickly, they pay a price. <laughs> and so does the church. Paul wrote to Timothy concerning qualifications for elders. In one of them in the King James it says, not a novice. The New American Standard says, not a new convert. The Greek word literally says, a recently planted one. <laughs> in other words, you plant a bush. What's it going to do? Well, let it go through the heat of the summer. Let it know the ice of the winter. Will it survive? says not a novice or not a new convert or not one newly planted, you know, lest he be filled up and it be destructive. Sometimes I'm asked to come to churches and help them in setting up an eldership or solving problems with elders. And sometimes in doing that, you have to dismiss the entire eldership and start over. For me, there's a personal axiom, and that is this. God will not make a man an elder until he has chewed him up and spit him out. Now, sometimes there are exceptions. You see in Acts 14, there was an exception. Paul and Barnabas traveled planting churches and came back and ordained elders in every city, so the Holy Spirit must have said, pick this one and that one. But usually, we do not dare put someone in that role until they've known suffering, until they've known testing, until they've known trial, until they have known disappointment, and yes, sometimes severe physical illness continuing on because they have been seasoned in life. So Saul and Barnabas started out. Now Saul had two names. His Jewish name was Saul. His Latin or Roman name was Paul. 
And so as Saul and Barnabas started out as Barnabas and Saul began traveling very quickly, Barnabas no longer was the leader, but the younger man was, and he began to go by his Roman name, Paul. And they traveled through the city and other areas, planting churches, stoned one time, left for dead. God revived him. He got up the next morning and walked to the next town and preached some more. Tremendous success. And they came back to Antioch, excited to tell the church that had sent them out about all the things that God has done. And they did so, but then they found a problem. There were some Jewish Christians from Jerusalem who had came to Antioch and said, let me tell you something, Paul and Barnabas, oh, they're making a terrible mistake. Because they're preaching Jesus and not requiring people to be circumcised. Before you can be in the kingdom of God, you first have to at least keep the basic things about the first covenant, the covenant of Moses. And it caused such a stir that they sent Barnabas and Paul and a contingency of people to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders there. What's the truth? Let's settle this thing. And you know about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 in which the decision was made, no, Gentiles do not have to first become Jews. Gentiles do not have to keep the law. And they wrote a letter and said, take this letter and carry it out among the churches and tell them our ruling. So Paul and Silas went back to Antioch and they then began to travel among the churches where Paul and Barnabas had planted churches throughout Pisidia, the southern region of Galatia, and so on. Lystra, the young man Timothy joined them. Finally, after they'd made that round of churches, they found themselves at the most northern town where they had preached previously. It was Antioch of Pisidia. And they thought, what do we do now? Paul thought, well, Barnabas and I, we traveled about planting churches. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We want to obey Jesus, so let's do it. So we'll do exactly what Barnabas and I went a bit north of the first city and started to preach. The Holy Spirit said, shut your mouth. Don't preach a thing in this town. <laughs> well, let's see. Go therefore and make the stops of all nations. So they traveled west. And every place they'd go and they'd try to preach, and the Holy Spirit would say, shut your mouth. Don't preach. They tried to go to Mysia. They tried to go to Bithynia. The Holy Spirit even prevented them from going to Bithynia. And they kept traveling and finally found themselves on the coast of the Aegean Sea. Here was a bunch of water in front of them, 800, 1,000 miles they'd walked. What do we do? Well, do we turn around and walk 800, 1,000 miles back home? What do we do? And then God gave a vision to Paul. Standing before him, there was a Macedonian man recognized by attire and physical features. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And they realized that was God's will. There's a lesson in what we've just described. Our God is sovereign. And it seems that in his sovereignty, he has a timing for various ethnic groups and various nations. 
And historically, we can look back and see an ethnic group or a nation that suddenly the gospel just exploded with tremendous success. Where other places, great effort was put forth with virtually no success. And so God said, don't preach here, not here. Don't go to Mysia, don't go to Bithynia. My timing is not right for those nations. But in my sovereign will, it is time to take the gospel to Macedonia and to Greece. And so that's what they did. That's something for us to listen to and learn. But notice, they were still trying. They were moving, you see. They were moving. But God was putting curbs. No, no, no. But here. Ray and Denise, I thought of that as you were telling about your time in Brazil. Oh, we went here. No. Here, no. Here, no. Well, let's go home. Oh. <laughs> it's a lot like that, isn't it? Kind of a lot like what you went through. And so they went across the Aegean Sea to Neapolis, shortly inland to the city of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. Uh, the, in the Roman army, in the early days of the Republic, before you could be in the army, you have to be of a social class so you could buy your own weapons and pay your own expenses. Gaius Marius, when he became the proconsul of Rome and began to lead the armies, changed that, and he opened up the army to anybody that wanted enlisted. So a bunch of poor folks joined. But after they got to the point where they were the age that they couldn't fight anymore, what are you going to do with all these guys that can't support themselves anymore? The city of Corinth had been totally obliterated. It didn't exist. And so the Roman government reestablished that city as a place that retired soldiers could go, and they all got a pension, a piece of ground. They did the same thing with Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. Large, The core inhabitants were retired Roman soldiers. Probably the Philippian jailer was a retired Roman soldier. Go to this city, God said, go, and they went. Well, when they got there, what do we do now? We don't, you know, we don't have any uh, uh, agora. There's no forum to preach. What do we do? There's no synagogue here. But in ancient times, it was the custom for the riverbanks in many cultures to be a place of prayer and worship. So let's go to the riverbank. They went down the riverbank, found a bunch of women praying. And they began to share the word. And as they did, there was one woman, according to Acts 16, God opened Lydia's heart. Lydia was a woman from Thyatira. She was a, a, a businesswoman, probably a prosperous woman, because Thyatira and purple dye was very expensive. She would have been much like a, a diamond importer here in Tulsa. A woman of prosperity. She had her own business. She had a house. She had servants. But it said, the Lord opened her heart. That's important. This last week I was thinking, what if God on Friday said to me, Jim Garrett, you're going to preach your last sermon April 19th. I'm going to take you home Tuesday morning. You'll have Monday to tell everybody goodbye. <laughs> now you can pick the place and you can pick the audience and preach whatever you want. Had God said that to me, here's what I would have said to him. Let me be in an auditorium 
on stage and let everyone in the audience be a damned sinner on the way to hell. Anoint me as I preach the gospel. May the Holy Spirit fall on that congregation and bring conviction of sin and make the gospel alive. And let me exhaust myself Sunday afternoon immersing people into Jesus so tired I can't wiggle anymore. What a way to go out. But the key to all of that is, you see, the Holy Spirit anoints a preacher and the Holy Spirit fall on the congregation. Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, talks about the great evangelistic success but he said, we didn't do it with persuasive words, but what you were witnessing was the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you read that record of what happened, there was not a single miracle. Nobody was healed. Nobody raised from the dead. Nobody delivered. The power he was talking about was the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel, the preaching, the anointing of the work, and the Holy Spirit moving upon the heart. Oh, let me tell you, that's what we need in America today, isn't it? We need, we need God to move. I fear he has withdrawn his hand. I'm fairly well convinced he has. And if anything is to happen to our nation positively, before we go down as a nation and we're on our way down, the Holy Spirit has to move upon our land. And that's something we need to pray and intercede for. We're not going to solve problems politically or otherwise. This problem's going to get solved at all. It's going to be a move of God. May the Holy Spirit fall upon our land. So they began to experience some converts. It became their custom to go to the river and pray. And as they began to do that day after day, there was a woman in the city. She was a slave. And she was a fortune teller. She was possessed of the spirit of divination. And as they would go along, this woman who had the spirit of divination realized who these men were, and she began to cry out, These are great servants of God. They're telling us the way of salvation. Folks heard her say it. You think, what tremendous publicity. But not so. For after a day or two, Paul looked at her, cast out the demon. The spirit of divination was gone. You see, even though it might have been great publicity, the source was wrong. The source was wrong. It's important to recognize the spiritual roots of everything that we choose to follow. Also, if Paul had allowed that to go on, Converts would have thought, oh, okay, this woman is proclaiming the truth, and so they would have given some credibility to that spirit of divination that owned the woman, something that could not be allowed. And so the spirit of divination was cast out, and as you remember, <laughs> that made her owners mad, and so Paul and Silas ended up in jail. You know the story. Well, we could go on, couldn't we? But here is how the gospel came to Philippi. 
One reason Philippi was on my mind is early in the week I began to think about that third. Not reading the epistle because so much of it is already in my mind. But again, to think about that church, I began to think that Brian and Elizabeth were going to be here today, and I knew that Ray and Denise were going to give a testimony. And when you think about what Paul says about that Philippian church, that's Tulsa Christian Fellowship. Dedicated, commissioned, faithfully supporting. Year after year after year. Paul says you're the only church that stayed faithful supporting. And you started it as soon as I left town. <laughs> Something to think about. The Philippian church, to me, is a New Testament church like ETS. Now, if God wants us to bring a word from the epistle, you'll have to say so. But these are lessons that God has for us to learn, to think about, to ponder concerning how the gospel Father, we're thankful that you did take the gospel to that city. We're thankful for the tremendous heritage that that church provided for many, many years. And if there's anything today spoken that's relevant to us or them, may we hear your voice. If not, help us to forget. Through Jesus, amen.